Hello, my name is Michal Katz, and I head the Investment and Corporate Banking Division at Mizuho Americas. Welcome to the Digital Horizons Leaders Podcast, where we speak with the people at the vanguard of planning for and responding to the seismic changes being delivered by Digital Transformation 3.0. Hi, I'm Rich Gallivan, head of TMT Investment and Corporate Banking at Mizuho Americas. Today, I'm sitting down with Mark Adams, CEO of Smart Global Holdings, a $1.5 billion manufacturer of compute, memory, and LED subsystems for the enterprise, government, education, consumer, and OEM markets. Mark also serves on the boards of Seagate Technology and Cadence Design Systems. In the past, Mark was CEO of LumaLeds, a $1.9 billion LED-based lighting solutions company serving the automotive, mobile, and IoT market, and president at Micron Technology, a $90 billion market cap memory solutions company in the semiconductor industry. Mark has an extensive track record in the semiconductor, storage, OEM, and consumer markets space. Mark, it's great to speak to you today. How are you? I'm doing great, Rich. How are you? Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today. You know, Mark, I think about the transitions that are underway in the technology uh, space today and the shift towards this digital economy that we're all experiencing as, you know, the third or fourth phase of, of massive changes I've seen through my 30-year career as a banker. We went from mainframe to client server, client server to cloud, and now cloud which is permeating everything we do via mobile or edge computing, et cetera. And the impact that's having across industries, across the entire economy is nothing short of a tidal wave. But sometimes what we fail to, to do is take a step back and say, how was all of this enabled? One of the exciting reasons I was happy to have you join us today is you come from the hardware side of the business. You know, oftentimes we're talking about applications and mobile and this or that and how it's impacting other industries but we fail to think through what the implications are of how did all this come about? Processing power, compute capabilities, infrastructure, what cloud computing really means. And I wanted to dive in today with you, particularly given your background and history around the electronics and hardware segments of the tech industry, to get your perspectives of what you think that means. You know, what does it mean to the overall you know, technology ecosystem? But moreover, how do you think about the implications to the companies that you're associated with where you are today or sitting on the board, et cetera. I'm just curious as to your perspectives. Well, it's funny you say that because I've always laughed a little bit because if you go back 40 years, you're right. There was a centralized data center, IBM mainframe, Big Blue. And then all of a sudden you had DEC come out and they were like the VAX cluster company and they started to get distributed. And then I think it was like, uh, I want to say early 90s, there was this client server, intelligent desktop. And in one sense, it's actually more of the same, right? Because you still have massive data centers. And today, some of those data centers actually are cloud service providers setting up data centers. Uh, and then you also have edge computing, which is a lot like client server and pushing it out to the, to the endpoint. And so I think there's a little bit of the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that the thing that's most interesting for me really is the explosion of data and the ability to move that data around to where it needs to be for people to use it and make decisions on. 
there's all the consumer stuff that you could might imagine, but I think I'm thinking more now in terms of business as well, where, you know, I think high performance compute AI type stuff is going to shift out to the end users where people need to make decisions in their daily jobs, whether it be shop floor analytics or whether it be health services or any of the verticals that you're seeing people invest heavily. We're already seeing AI applications move from the data center to the edge, to the cloud. And I think a lot of that has to do with both the ability to be able to move information transparently and quickly, securely to the decision maker, which is one. And then two, I think it has to do with the levels of sophistication of hardware and software being able to run what AI needs, which is basically when you think about artificial intelligence, you're basically simulating real life. But you need to have heavy compute power, both the hardware and the memory and the storage, but also the application layer to compute logic that is simulating these algorithms that make artificial intelligence really play out. And so both the complex bandwidth requirements and the massive compute intense resources needed, the level of innovation that's gone on there is just staggering, which is actually enabling what you're saying, this digital transformation in the world we live in. Yeah, that's a great perspective. One of the things that I think about often is the shift in terms of the digital transformation, COVID-19 and work from home, and how there's a lot of perspectives and research. I recently read a McKinsey report talking about the speed of adoption of digital technologies has really accelerated because of COVID, because of that shift from work from home. And in some ways, it was already happening, but it was just going slowly, right? It was just, there was a slow uptake and this has sped us up. And I'm curious, is do you think that's here to stay or is there going to be a retrenchment back towards perhaps how things were done the old ways? Oh, I cannot imagine there's a retrenchment all the way back to where we were pre-COVID because I think what we're learning about There's two things, the capabilities of a workforce to actually balance out a hybrid model and the emotional reaction to the lifestyle that's come out of COVID that's really triggered this phase of this time of great resignation. I think people are really asking themselves lifestyle questions that far transcend work alone. And so you've got the emotional component with the actual two-year experiment of What goes on at business with people working from home? And I'll tell you, in my life, do I need to travel around the country to do non-deal roadshows anymore? Not all of them. Do I need to go to trade shows all the time? You know, some, but not all of them. And even customer engagement, supplier engagement. I'm not saying that's going away. No, you need human connectivity. And I'm a big believer in that. But I think there's going to be more selectivity around what people travel for and what they don't travel for. And the other thing is what people are in the office for and what they're not in the office for. And I think that improvement in the quality of life will be a demand that employees make on great companies worldwide. Yeah, I think we're we're seeing it impact our business as well. As you know, we do a lot of client interactions over Zoom now where previously we would have pushed to have every meeting with our client in person. We can do a lot more now, be more productive, Still, you want to get in front of clients for that connection to develop personal relationships, which are hard to do over over Zoom and the Internet. But I think it's here to stay. And I think if if anything, it's going to give us greater productivity um, going forward. Just one challenge in that is when you have a company 
that's in, in an environment like, kind of like ours where we're manufacturing and you've got 80% of the workforce coming in five days a week, 12 hours shifts. And then you've got people who are in other disciplines within a company that are in two days a week. You have to think through what that like from a culture perspective. Is it is it a have and have not type dynamic? And I think the world's going to wrestle with how to balance out flexibility and quality of life with, you know, the, the overall culture. Because it's really, you know, we all fell into this lifestyle because we had to. You know, the COVID brought this upon us. And, you know, the question becomes, how does this manifest itself into culture long term? Because right now we we know the short term, but we don't know five years out, seven years out, 10 years out, how this impacts companies. And even within a company, certain areas have to be in, certain areas don't. How that, you know, kind of impacts the overall global culture that you're trying to establish. Yeah, no, that's an important variable for sure as we manage businesses. I want to shift the conversation a little bit, Mark. One of the other impacts of COVID and the pandemic has, has been a pretty significant disruption in the supply chain globally for manufacturing operations of almost every company on the earth. Semiconductors have been top of mind in terms of the ability of every industry that relies upon silicon and chips to manufacture their products and get them to market. The demand for those chips has been on a steady rise. Facility expansions are are gonna take years to catch up with respect to what Intel and TSMC and Samsung are doing globally. You couple that with major labor, labor shortages that are plaguing all industries. Do you think there's light at the end of the tunnel? Not in the short term. And in the, I mean, I think short term meaning certainly in the front half of 22, I don't see it. And I've kind of been on record that I think it's probably at least a 2022 issue. Uh, and then we can, we'll get signals along the way. I think you hit on something that's really kind of interesting. This is the first time in my professional life that it's been so deep in terms of the breadth of microelectronic shortages across so many different industries. I grew up in the memory industry, and that was a classic case of oversupply, over-demand, capacity implementation. And I understand that model better than most because of the scale of a semiconductor company and the billions of dollars of the capex that have to go in to increase capacity. And the idea for me that all of this will change at the same time and fix itself quickly, it's not possible because... Every industry has their own rules of how capacity gets added, just just logistics-wise. You you raise the capital, you buy the equipment. By the way, the equipment isn't just sitting there in inventory. The capital equipment guys, the semiconductor guys, they're not sitting on inventory on hand, so they need to go off and build it. It's more like a a build-to-order mechanism. And then we're all going to execute flawlessly, get this equipment installed, qualified, and producing at great yields. I mean... It's and it's been going on, so it's not like we're just starting, but it doesn't happen overnight. My concern is all these different industries going through it at the same time, they're not all going to arrive on January 1st, 2023, and be done. As a matter of fact, the concern I have is remember, it's the lowest common denominator. The last industry to come along is going to be the fix. And so, you know, what's ironic today, you've got 10 cent analog parts holding up automobile production. And so the breadth of it to me, as you highlighted, is really the key. And there's so much that has to be kind of executed on across multiple industries that I think it's at least a 12-month fix until we see meaningful 
changes in, in the environment. Yeah, I, my concern is also just the macroeconomic impact of all of this because it's leading, I think it's a big part of what's putting infl- inflationary pressures on the economy is you've got the consumers flush with cash wanting to spend on product and we can't fill the demand fast enough and you've got a spike in inflation. And I just worry about what that's going to mean to the overall economy as we go into 2022. No doubt. And and, and then you know from your industry, there's a lot of money on the sidelines right now waiting to be spent. And it's kind of, it's irrational. And so I think, well, that's what we're seeing. And by the way, the, the capital markets are kind of sending up some smoke signals right now that people are, are wondering how this is all going to play out. Inflation and the broader political landscape are all kind of contributing to some uncertainty while this kind of solves itself. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the political landscape. One of the things I think is is deeply intertwined with the semiconductor and supply chain shortages is just the national security implications of our dependence on these industries to facilitate our economy growth. Uh, yet at the same time, historically, there's been a big shift towards manufacturing capacity into Asia. I'm curious, Mark, I know you spent some time you know, involved with, with some strategic thinking about implications to the U.S. economy from a national security perspective. How do you think about chips, semiconductors, nationalization of supply chains, et cetera, that are all top of mind right now, both in the political and economic sphere? Yeah, I think any country, not just us, but any country is going to have the same type of concerns relative to making sure they can protect you know, the national security interests of the country. And I think given globalization, all countries have some dependency outside of their own, so to speak. And, and we're no different. 80% of our chips are made outside of the U.S. And so from that perspective, if we ever have a problem and a cutoff in terms of supply of that, this crucial technology, it's, it's going to have a big risk uh, factor associated with how we would recover from that and, and what, our, what our exposures are. I think everybody's looking to strengthen within and the U.S. is no different. I think we've prioritized the idea of setting up more in-country manufacturing to ensure critical supply. Of course, the CHIPS Act has been uh, mentioned as a key piece of legislation to incentivize that. But you've got large manufacturers and across all the verticals we were just talking about that for the right reasons, globalization and lower cost regions were able to go off and build infrastructure globally and in some sense, manufacturing left the U.S. And I think what the U.S. is realizing is that's probably not what we want long term. And we need to, to incentivize at least uh, onshoring, I guess is the word they call, but um, just getting some of that back in country so they, we can stabilize our own needs on some of this technology. Yeah, there's been big announcements recently, Ohio, Arizona, Austin, Texas, where Intel, TSMC, and Samsung are all building and investing in megafabs, you know, putting tens of billions of dollars of investment over the next visible time horizon, next several years. I'm curious how you think that's going to change or shift supply chains and what kind of implications that will have longer term. I think from a national security perspective, it all sounds pretty positive. I do think one thing that's on my mind is that it used to be that people decoupled manufacturing with innovation, meaning it was okay to lose the manufacturing, but we would just keep our arms around innovation. And the fact, in my opinion, too, is those are tightly coupled. So we're going to need to get a little bit of uh, the innovation element to this as well so we can get back in the game and it's no secret uh what's going on in semiconductors 
in terms of the shift of who's winning and who's losing. And I think from our perspective, it's not only just the manufacturing being on board, but it's also uh, the investments in R&D and and broader innovation to drive competitiveness long-term. What do you think about China and their role in all of this from a national security standpoint? There's been a whole spate of attempted mergers and acquisitions over the last few years that have been blocked by both Chinese or European or U.S. government regulatory agencies, all in the name of national security. I'm thinking of Qualcomm's attempted acquisition of NXP, Broadcom's attempt on Qualcomm, a recent applied materials deal, Magnachip's deal selling to Wise Road Capital, a small Chinese private equity fund. How do you think about M&A within the context of the industry you work in today? Because I know you guys must be impacted by it. Well, a little bit. And first of all, we've got a joint venture over in Hong Kong. We also have a big packaging facility in Huizhou and, and they're great teams. And so I think what's interesting as you ask that question, the backdrop is we're global companies and yet we're headquartered in the U.S. And then there's also global companies in other countries that are headquartered in those countries. And so it's a little bit of a, a puzzle to figure out relative to what's the right approach. I guess more broadly, what I would say is without being, you know, getting into the geopolitical discussion, my fundamental beliefs are that we're better off cooperating together than we are in the current state of blocking and, and finger pointing. I've done a lot of business in China over the years and there's great people, there's great workforces, there's great companies. I understand some of the challenges we faced as, as U.S. corporations, and I'm sure if you went over there, they'd tell you the same. But at the end of the day, I fundamentally believe that the Chinese economy needs a healthy U.S. and the U.S. economy needs a stable, healthy China. And I just don't feel like the current line of, of thinking is going to get us there. Uh, and I think it would be great to see both China and the U.S., kind of try to get to the table and and be a little bit more collaborative in, in our longer term thinking. It's funny, sitting on this side of the pond, all I've heard about for the last seven to 10 years is China's got this new interest in semiconductors. Well, they were importing into China 95% of their semiconductor demand. So the, the fact that they want to develop semiconductors, if I was sitting on that side of the pond, I'd get it. Now, for us, for example, on the, you know, on the other issues, I get our position. But there's, there's an element of geopolitical posturing that's getting in the way of longer term advancements in technology and really, you know, better operating models for both sides. And I think that it'd be really kind of, it behooves both, both countries to really try to work on a, a healthier, longer term path. And hopefully that's what we'll get to over time. Yeah, I think probably one of the biggest challenges for the U.S. industry has been competing against state-subsidized uh, industrial uh, investment. And I, I'm thinking back across the course of my career, you know, from the U.S. and Japanese historical positions of strength in semiconductors and semiconductor pro- production to the rise of Korea and Taiwan and China, all off the back in some ways with regards to uh, subsidized land or power costs or whatever the infrastructure was. And that seemed to have put the U.S. industry on the back foot a little bit. But I think with the CHIPS Act, or at least what I see going on, is that there's a little bit of positioning with respect to the U.S. government getting behind our domestic industry and just trying to 
assist in shoring it up and providing that onshoring from a strategic perspective, which is probably a little bit of a more balancing out of affairs. I'm curious as to your perspective from there, Mark. Well, it's, it's again, it's really interesting, Rich, because, um, you know, I experienced this when I was the president of Micron. We were approached by Xinhua. And am I the president of a global enterprise representing shareholder interest? Or am I the president of a U.S.-based company in Boise, Idaho? And the answer is both. So I think I, I understand the subsidies and I understand the national interest in other parts of the world. But I also think that our position to retain this innovation is late. And I think that um, incentivizing some of that is really healthy for the trend of losing a lot of that. As I said, I think the, the initial logic was flawed, meaning, oh, we're just going to let manufacturing go because we're going to become a service and an innovation economy. There's elements of that are true, but there's elements of that that didn't play out. And I think we're going to pay the sins for that until we fix it. No, that's a great point. I'm curious, Mark, is your thoughts on just fundamentally the future of technology? We talked earlier in the discussion about these shifts that have taken place through both your and my career. Where does it go from here? Everybody talks about Moore's Law is is kind of coming to an end. It's slowing down. There's a whole series of things that have happened in terms of shifting uh, computational power and infrastructure. But the fascinating thing about technology for me as a banker is Remember in the late 90s, we thought the dot-com bubble was just the cat's meow. This is the peak. This is as good as it's going to get. Well, I actually think we were way wrong. I think today, sitting here today, is an incredibly exciting time to be in finance and servicing the technology industry. I'm curious, from your perspective, sitting on the boards of Seagate and Cadence Design and being at Smart Global, how do you think about the future of technology and the implications to society? Do you think it's slowing down the level of innovation, the pace of innovation, or are we actually seeing an acceleration and we haven't even thought through what the potential impacts are going to be on society? Oh, I think it's the latter by far. I don't think it's slowing down. And I think this whole era of AI and machine learning, autonomous driving, robotics, there's so many different applications that are nascent today, but they're big, big investments, both in terms of intellectual capital and human capital and financial capital that I think, actually, I think it's going to speed up, but I think the next 20 to 30 years is going to be fascinating relative to the change you're going to see in our lives with, uh, again, AI type applications. Today, there's a lot of analytics around that, but just I think in terms of, you know, our lifestyles will change that way. And you get like silly things. You think about how how advertising to consumers has changed in the last 20 to 30 years. And now it's like if I Google something and I see something pop up, well, I'm going to get advertisement for the next two weeks on sales on something that was closely remotely to it. It's just fascinating. That's a very simple example. I think it's going to be exponentially more accelerated over the next 30 years because I think the investments people are making into today haven't even started to roll out to our lifestyle. I mean, again, how long have we heard about autonomous driving, right? We know it's coming. That, that's unbelievable. And then, and then what happens in the car when you're not driving? Then it's an entertainment platform. Then it's a communication platform. So you pick a vertical. Healthcare is another great area of investments in this way. And, and, so I just think it's uh, definitely the latter. I think it's more acceleration in front of us than not. That's a great perspective. And as you think about that from a forward-looking standpoint, how do you think about M&A? You know, as an executive CEO of a public company today, 
you know, what does this mean towards uh, mergers and acquisitions in the context of consolidation of industries and acquiring for growth or trying to consolidate for just value creation purposes and squeezing costs? But how do you think all of this impacts M&A within the context of the future roadmap of technology? I think M&A is going to continue to accelerate as well on a relative basis. Now, I think the capital markets today may provide a little headwind given the valuations that are out there, even post the last couple of weeks in the capital markets. I think that even saying that the last year, I mean, the M&A numbers are just off the charts. You know better than I do. I think the, the interesting thing about all that is the level of investment and the level of, of innovation for any one company, it's kind of hard to even get your arms around all the elements it takes to integrate and deliver these, on these technologies. And that's why some of the biggest companies in the world are, are M&A machines because they're going out and they're finding smaller capabilities to add to their portfolio. And so with the complexity of the next 30 years, I think M&A will continue to be front and center on the minds of executives and a, a very useful tool to accelerate. Again, with just the one cautious note of, you know, valuations can really get out of hand and, and you've got software companies trading at 20 times revenue. Well, even after the correction over the last couple of weeks, I was looking at it the other day and valuations on average for high growth software companies have maybe gone from 20 times forward revenue to 15 times. But within any historical context at all, those valuations, even today after the correction, are very, very high relative to historical norms if you just roll back a few years ago. That's kind of, you're just reinforcing where I was going, which is, you know, it's. I think it's going to be prudent. I think people have to be mindful of overpaying because that brings on other issues. But um, I think in general, people work that through and the markets will correct themselves accordingly. Because remember, there's for every company that's uh, in that little pool of 15 to 20 times revenue, 10% make it, 90% get bought up at book value five years from now. And so all these things we're talking about in terms of technology, complexity comes with it, you know, and the level of sophistication in these technology arenas is very high. And that's why I think the people lean on M&A to, to bring in expertise in an accelerated way. Well, Mark, I really appreciate your insights today. There's been so many rapid changes in technology it appears there's a lot more to come. I'm personally looking forward to seeing what the future brings in terms of this continued digital transformation. Thank you for joining us and participating in Mizuho's podcast series. Yeah, great. Thanks again for having me, Rich. Good to talk to you. You got it. Thank you for listening to the Digital Horizons Leaders Podcast. Visit www. MizuhoDigitalHorizons.com for more episodes in the series and read more on the trends and technologies emerging from Digital Transformation 3.0. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Mizuho entity to the listener. Neither Mizuho nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or the completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct or indirect or consequential losses 
or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Mizuho, and Mizuho is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of the podcast by any listener is not to be taken as the giving of investment advice by Mizuho, nor to constitute that person a client of any Mizuho entity. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit mizuhogroup.com forward slash Americas.